0: Good morning, it's very good to be with you, I, um, obviously this is my first time here, but I have a sense of history because I know your drummer and uh, I wanted to let you know, I, I met him up at Heartland Camp and when groups come in, it's, it's bustling, you know, a bunch of stuff happening, but when groups aren't there, it's quiet and peaceful except for the drums the drums go on all the time on our mountain, and no, I'm kidding, actually he's got his place, actually you're in a new place now that he's married, and it's a pleasure having him up there, so, but I left a year ago, and my introduction to you really was when he showed up a few years ago, uh, I can't remember if it was he or I, but um, we, we decided we'd get together for a little Bible study in the mornings, and he suggested that we go over the notes of your pastor, pastor Newton here. And so he would present those notes and we'd look up the cross references and all that. And that was the nature of our study uh, for a season there at Heartland. So yeah, that's in my past. And um, I worked there for many summers and then six years full-time. And uh, then we came back into the valley and I returned to Fresno Christian Schools, which is where I work now. I served there prior to my full-time stint at Heartland. But um, we have five boys, And so my wife said, let's move to the mountains full-time, so we did that for a season. And now coming back, I'm back at Fresno Christian Teaching Junior hires. so please pray for me. (laughs) Actually, I'm kind of kidding. That's one of the joys I I had in coming to you is realizing that the families are here. I really love that. And I know that a number of the youth are gone today, but uh, it's great to be with you. So great to have families together and young people, um, the passage that we're going to look at, I actually chose based on that fact that there would be some, some kids here, uh, because it's very visual, and then you will also see where there are points that maybe go a little deeper than you're able to, how the adults grapple with the word here, which, as you know, is not kids stuff. It's for kids, but it's not kids stuff, and it's something that we will indeed wrestle with for our lives as we come to know the author of this good word. So I'm in 1 Timothy chapter 1, excuse me, chapter 2. Could you please turn there? 1 Timothy chapter 2. And I failed to get the page number of the Pew Bibles, but 1 Timothy chapter 2. This is the apostle Paul's letter to his protege, Timothy, a pastor in Ephesus, And at chapter 2, verse 1, let's stand and read this together in honor of God's word. I'll read it out loud. You'll follow along. Paul tells Timothy First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, and for all who are in high positions. who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. This is the eternal word of God. It will never pass away. You may be seated. There's a popular theological debate out today, in our day, that surrounds this passage and centers around Paul's use of the word all, which if you caught is repeated several times. And especially with regard to verses 4 and 6, which I'll just read again quickly, this is going to be our primary passage that we look at. In verse 4, he speaks of uh, God who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And then in verse 6, speaking of Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all. And so the debate, the question is, who is this all that Paul is speaking of? The notion today surfaces again in 1 Timothy 4.10. You can flip over. I'm going to read it for you. I'm just catching in the middle of the thought, but the end of this verse is important. He says, For, this, for to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe, says in 410. And so this idea raises questions today about the extent of Christ's atonement for sin. And I think maybe a number of you know what I'm talking about, this idea of universalism, and that is that everyone, everywhere, is going to heaven. This is a lie, and... It's prevalent in our time, I want to suggest. We're going to leave that idea, though, to the side, because I think we we know that. And I kept stressing, today that's the idea, but we're going to set it aside because it never enters the mind of Paul, for sure. It never enters the mind of Timothy, who receives this word, and it would never have entered the minds of the original readers. It flies in the face of what Jesus said in John 17, where he came for the elect, and he prays for the elect. Certainly, he prays for the lost, but he prays for the elect. And additionally, universalism, the idea that everyone's going to heaven, flies in the face of John 5, where Christ speaks of the resurrection of life and a second resurrection of judgment. Two separate resurrections. So we know from Christ and from Paul's words that there will come a day when the sheep and the goats are separated, when the wheat and chaff is separated, when the godly in Christ will be separated from the ungodly without Christ. So the debate about universalism does not deserve our time. It's a product of the skeptical times we live in which degrades the truth of God's word. And and I want to also suggest this. as, As popular as that idea is, Universalism cheapens the gospel, removes the need for evangelism, and makes it clear nobody really needs Christ. And this passage, in contrast, the truth about this passage is, it is all about the greatness of the gospel, the need for evangelism, and the great need that every man and woman has for Christ. But still, we have to answer this question. What does Paul mean in his use of the word all here? I'm trying to find a spot for, excuse me, working with a different pulpit here. Can I just throw my used notes on the ground? I won't. Okay. I want to jump right to the heart of this passage. If you'll roll with me here, okay? We're going to be focused on one to six, but I want to give the answer to this question to start out, and it goes to right at the heart of this passage, and I believe the heart of the gospel, and it's in verse five, okay? We're going to start at verse five, go to six, then go back with our answer to who the all is through one, two, three, four, and end up on five again, okay? Let's read it again, verse 5, follow along with me. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Here's the answer to the question. We know that because grammatically, when you see this word for, what we have is a gar clause. It's an explanation The word for indicates there's a conclusion, an answer coming. So this word for could also reasonably be translated because. Here's our answer. Because there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. This is why the word all is used in this passage, because there is one God And one mediator between God and men. Oh, you are great, John. I'm sorry. What a distraction I've created, but thank you for your help. Okay. (laughs) Uh, This is the gospel of Christ. And I think that it is one of the clearest pictures of the gospel in all of Scripture. And I'll just tell you from the get-go, it is a clear exhortation for us to present this Christ to the world, to everyone. So let's look at it again. Because I'm trusting, I, th- I think we're all visual learners. I've asked that of my students. How many of you are visual learners? And somebody, sometimes only a few will raise their hands. I tend to think we all are. We like word pictures. We picture things in our mind. And Christ, the Apostle Paul here, helps us see what Christ is to us so visually here. I'm going to read it again. For there is one God... And there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Picture it again. Try to see this, this image of who our Christ is. There is only one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. There's only one God, and by definition, there can be only one Almighty. We we live in a world, just like Paul did, where there are all sorts of other so-called gods vying for our attention, vying for our hearts. I appreciated the prayer. It addressed those for what they are, idols, and our hearts are idol factories, and we chase after these false gods. You can write this and check this out later. You don't have to turn there, but 1 Corinthians 8, 5, and 6 Paul says, For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. There is only one God, this verse says. Only one true Almighty. And there is only one mediator between God and men. The idea is there is only one mediator between God and all men is the sense. The man, Christ Jesus, is the only mediator for God for any and all people. So you see what Paul wants us to see. This term mediator, the Greek is mesotase, and it indicates and speaks of the space between two parties. Literally, it means the go-between. He is our go-between. He is the only go-between that literally spans the middle between God and all men. So what I'm wanting us to see is the picture, and it's my title, that Jesus is our great bridge builder. He has forged a great bridge that makes it possible for you and everyone to be reconciled to God. So based on Paul's very visual description, Christ is that mediator, and he has made that bridge. The bridge helps us understand the nature of our relationship to God. My understanding is that you're studying the attributes of God in your Sunday school class And that is a valuable study, again, a lifelong study. But I recently had a professor tell me this, and I thought it really stood out. There are some moments that really stand out in our time in the Word, as you know. And he said, when studying the attributes of God, let's not make the mistake to picture a list. And I like to know what that list is. My understanding is you were looking at some of the omnis this morning. And that's good, that's valuable. We want to know what God's attributes, I like there's another term for it, what his perfections are, the perfections of God. We need to know that list. It keeps us from worshiping a false god, from chasing after something other than the Christ proclaimed in Scripture. However, my professor said, don't picture the list. Picture what those attributes look like when they're fleshed out. And what's awesome is they're fleshed out by Christ incarnate. Picture the attributes in motion. Picture the attributes of God, his perfections, as they work to redeem us and as they work to see Christ enthroned And in glory above all else. I want to picture the attributes, not the word, but in motion. And I think this bridge picture does that very well. Knowing his attributes is important. But when you begin to picture them, I see Christ as our omnipotent, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, all-powerful go-between between God and men. So let's look at the uh, the bridge that God has provided for us. I want to present, just focus on verse 5 before we move on to the others. Five reasons God, Jesus Christ, is the great bridge builder. Five reasons. And we could probably come up with 10, 20 or more. But I want to give you five that stand out to me. Jesus is the great bridge builder because he is the only bridge he provides the only, the one, the lone bridge between God and men. He is the only means worldwide to be reconciled to God. There's no other option. Well, there, there are other options. There are many other options, but they don't work. Any other bridge fails to bear the burden of your sin. Any other bridge fails to span the gap. These other options should be scary to us. Uh, I've spent a little bit of time in Pittsburgh. It's been a while since I've been there, but a few years ago when I was there, I happened to run into, over lunch, a a bridge engineer in Pittsburgh, a a man who engineers bridges. I thought it was curious, and I, you know, ignorantly said, what are you doing in Pittsburgh? And he said, are you kidding? We've got the second most number of bridges in the world after Venice, Italy, Italy. So, anyway, I don't know if that's true. Some people say it's other cities, but Pittsburgh claims to be number two, apparently. I don't know if you realize or remember, but it was just a few months ago in January where one of those bridges suddenly collapsed, just collapsed without warning. And I looked this story up to see if it was still a deal, and indeed, the lawsuits are flying. There was no warning, and obviously neglect, negligence on the part of whomever where a city is in somewhat great fear about which bridges work and which bridges don't because the city did come out and say, uh, we got a lot of bridges that need some work, you know. So how would you like to live in that situation? Our situation is not that. There's one bridge. There's one option. He's Christ. He is the only bridge, Christ Jesus, from men to God. Number two, A second reason he's the great bridge builder is because the gap that Christ bridges is so immense. When you picture what I want us to picture with God on one side and all men on the other, there's not enough space in our imagination to picture it. What we're describing and what Christ is as a mediator is a go-between between an enormous gulf between the holy god who is above all else and perfect in purity and righteousness and all men it is a span that cannot be crossed by anyone else and that distance i want to suggest is good because of god's holiness here's what i mean god in his purity and righteousness habakkuk 113 says cannot look upon our sin So he is removed from sinners. Otherwise, he would wipe us out. He is removed. His eyes are too pure. Paul understood this, the self-proclaimed chief of sinners. So he speaks of this distance and this gap and the distance that Christ had to, in humiliation, come down to save sinners, to bridge the gap, to atone for our sin. This brings us to number three. Christ is the great bridge builder because what was required to bridge this gap is a terrible and great price. First off, Jesus had to live a perfect life, something that you and I can't do for five minutes. And then in that perfection, you read about in Philippians 2, He humiliated himself, that is, he humbled himself to the point of crucifixion. This is God incarnate, and he took upon our sin. And in a Reformed setting, you've probably delved into this more than, than others. I remember the first time I heard it in a Reformed setting, the truth of what it means to be saved and what we're saved from, because the popular idea, the, the idea that has a true sense to it but misses the point is that we're saved from our sins. And one of my great teachers in my life said, no, you're, how can your sins get you? What we're saved from is God. The gospel is God saving us from God who punishes sin. And so the nails with that picture in mind become a side note. The nails of the cross are what men could do to the body. But what stands out is the punishment for sin that God meted out on Christ when he poured out his wrath on the Son. And I think we only get one glimpse of it, and it's when Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then when it was over, he says, It is finished. The price is paid through the perfect life and the death of God's own Son. It's a great price, Because, and it can only be paid for by Christ because he is the infinite God-man. He is the perfect God and the perfect man, the holy God, holy man who could pay for this. And in his infiniteness, he is able to pay for our infinite transgression against an infinite God. Our sin, as simple as we may think it is, The Psalms tell us over and over when David says, I have sinned against you and you alone. I've sinned against heaven and even my small sins. They are against an infinite being, so an infinite price was necessary. God was able to supply that on the cross in a matter of hours. The alternative is an eternity for you and I in separation from God. A finite being cannot pay an infinite price. And so... In separation from God, those who pay the price for their sin will never fully pay for it. This is the idea of the great price that had to be paid for us and that only Christ as our bridge builder could give. It's the only way our sin could be paid for. And we gave no help. We gave no assistance. We have never helped in the saving of our souls. If we were to ever get that notion that we have some play, that we have some move. Peter thought that once, and Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, when Peter thought he could help Jesus and straighten him out. So don't go there. Jesus is the only one who could do what was necessary as our great bridge builder. Number five, excuse me, number four. I'm distracted. I'm dealing with two pulpits here. He's the great bridge builder because the bridge will forever be a beauty to behold. So I want you to picture this. There's going to come a time when every last one of the elect for which the bridge was made have crossed over into life and light. And yet this bridge will be a wonder worthy of worship. This is because Jesus is not just the great bridge builder. He is the bridge As he claims very clearly, saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the bridge. And he is the wonder to behold forever and ever. This is the only God who says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And we will marvel at the bridge that Christ Jesus is, seated on the throne above all else, forever and ever, those who use the bridge are those who love the bridge. And Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.8, they are the ones who look with great expectation to his future coming. They adore the bridge who is Jesus. He will forever be a beauty to behold. Number five, and lastly, again, the list could go on. i giving you five. Jesus is the great bridge builder because there are people from all nations who have used this bridge, and people from every nation on earth that will use it. It's for members of every nation on the planet. If you would turn just quickly to the end, Romans 7, verse 9, and you see a picture of this, or at least note this reference. Excuse me, Revelation. Did I say Romans? Sorry. Revelation. Excuse me, I said the end, yeah. Revelation 7, 9, the Apostle John's Vision here. After this I looked. Revelation 7, 9. And behold, John sees a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. So you get that? Here's the point. He's the great bridge builder because there are people from Every nation who have used it and will use it, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, they are clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hand, verse 10, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. I don't know if you've ever run into uh, world travelers or jet setters or people that you know, are independently wealthy and so they travel the world. On occasion I've run it because they boast about it too. And it seems to me that those are often the ones who want nothing to do with Christ because they're like, hey, I know that's the idea here, but if you could see what I've seen, they're wrong. He is the Savior of people from every nation the worldwide. And so we move on to verse 6. Look at the text with me. The mediator is Christ Jesus, in verse 6 says, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. That ransom, by its common usage, is a payment to free a slave. It's the redemption price for a slave. And the price paid was the life of Christ, for whom it says for all. So here's the question again, and we'll deal with it thoroughly now. Who is the all that Paul is referring to? To understand the sense of all, we need to consider the context of our passage. And I know you might be thinking, I've put the cart before the horse, but no, we're good. We're good. You understand the gospel. Now we need to understand that it's not just for us, but for everyone, Jesus declares Himself to be the ransom for all, who gave Himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given, and I've underlined it here, at the proper time. He's speaking, Paul is speaking to Christians in Ephesus, many of whom have a Jewish background, and they know that the Old Testament God was working to separate a people unto Himself. That is, the nation of Israel. The good news at that time was for Jews. Though non-Jews were grafted in, non-Jews were made members of God's body, of the people, of the Lord, most notably Rahab, Job is another, and others. But at the proper time, what Paul is saying and he says elsewhere, and the, the disciples, including Peter, come to realize this, The gospel is being revealed to Gentiles as well. Those Gentiles in the Old Testament were brought in. Gentiles in the New Testament now, at this proper time, are receiving Christ and understanding this ransom that is for all men. And others are being grafted in, and this message is to be presented to all. Let's look at all as it repeats And back up to verse 1. This is this charge that Paul gives Timothy. And it's it's great because after giving some warnings and singling out a couple guys that have strayed from the path, in his focus on evangelism and the gospel here, he tells them, and, and this is a message for us, first of all, first of all, this means it's of primary importance. I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. He's telling them, leave no one out in your prayers. Pray for all, including those who persecute you. Including those in a world that hates you. Including prayer for the lost. And then he qualifies who all of these who the all includes, and he says in verse 2, he says to pray for kings and all who are in high positions. Don't leave them out, church. Pray for them. Why? Then he gives the answer there, read it with me, that you may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. When we bring our concerns about our leaders and many of them who we would have to admit are enemies of the cross, the same as it was in Paul's time, in Timothy's time, when we bring those anxieties before the Lord, there's a peace that comes over us. A peace that results as we trust in the Lord, despite whom He has placed in power for His good reasons and for His good will. And then he says in verse 3, This is good. What's good? That you pray for your enemies. That you pray for the lost. Verse 3 continues. It's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. You see, the people in Timothy's church with their Jewish background are being exhorted to tell others about Jesus even their enemies. Paul is saying that God is saving people from all stations in life, from every nation, from previously God-hating backgrounds. And he's saying that God can save and transform your enemies. It does not mean everyone is saved, but it means he is saving all kinds of people, people that we might not ever expect. Paul would point to himself as an example. In his introduction here, as he does often, he speaks about himself as an unlikely convert, formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent to the cross. And as I said, the chief of sinners, that really is a title that he commends to all of us. He says it's a trustworthy saying. Christ came into the world to save sinners, uh, of whom I am chief. He says this should be our attitude. To understand that gap that, that Christ bridges. This is good. The persecution is ramping up under the reign of Nero during this time. And it's becoming more difficult to become a Christian. And I see parallels to today. So he begins, first of all, pray for them. For God is working on the hearts of the lost. Pray so that your heart will change and so that you might have a heart that all people would come to Christ. The reason we pray is back to five. We've come full circle. The reason we pray for all is because there's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And this is a beautiful gospel that we have and that we are aware of and that I see you are grateful for in your worship, in your prayer, in your gathering together, the grace that's been poured out on us to, to bring us here to a place that in many ways is a refuge from the world, but it is also a city on a hill that should not be hidden. And this is one of the implications about this passage. Do you know the bridge builder? Do you know Christ as a mediator? If not, then he says, come. Bring your burdens to me, and Christ can carry you through and see God's work in you to completion. But also, he says, do you know the Christ as the bridge builder? Then we must tell others. It tells us who we should be praying for and who we, sh- we should be telling about Jesus. And it's, it's our neighbor. It's all. We shouldn't reserve the message in any of our conversations And I know this takes wisdom to do, but it also takes understanding, I think, not to pray that God would open up doors for the gospel, but that we would see them and make those steps. This is what the author wants. Our tendency, like Timothy and like the believers at this time, it could be called our temptation, is to circle the wagons around this truth. And hold on to it. And uh, this Christ-hating environment might might lead us to do that, to hold the line here as sort of a last bastion of truth. We're holding the line. We're not going to fall into a social gospel. We're not going to even get wrapped up in politics, which people think is some rendering of Christianity that isn't biblical at all. We're not going to follow another Jesus, and there are many false Christs out there, the Mormon church. I run into those men, those guys in Fresno on occasion. It's not the same Jesus. So we hold the line on those places, and that's what Paul has told Timothy in chapter 1. That's part of his charge. And later he says, guard the truth of the gospel, Timothy. Don't twist it. Don't stray from it. Don't swerve from it. Indeed, Stick to it, but don't keep it to yourself. Timothy and the local church, and I can apply this to us, are to broadcast the fact that there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And if you have anxieties about that, It's just wonderful what Paul suggests to begin with. And you caught it. Just start praying. Just start praying. Again, not that God would open up doors. You may disagree with me on that, but I really think the doors are there. But that we would recognize the truth. One of the struggles that I had when I was working up at Heartland, which is a a place that strives to be a vessel for God's use and wants to see the gospel proclaimed, I found that when I was in the mountains and when I was with others, you know, guests and things, it was completely natural to talk about Christ and talk about the Lord. And you could say things when people would ask a question or bring something up. You could say something like that, yeah, praise the Lord, isn't it beautiful creation? And people expected that. But if you do that, when I was up there, if you did that down the hill, people do a double take. Up in the mountains at a camp, well, of course, I mean, of course he's, he's God. It reminds me of a gentleman I met once on, in Morro Bay, and he was from Detroit. And he was looking on the beach, and we were at the church there in uh, Cayucas and he was looking out at the rock and he was going, I don't understand how anybody could live here and not believe that there's a God. He goes, I'm from Detroit. It's easy to believe there's no God there. No, not true. Not true. We see God clearly because the display of the bridge is so great and the glory is so awesome that actually in the darker places, It can and should be more evident. So I had to deal with that, not change my language from up the hill and down the hill. And it's a battle for me to say, "No, I'm not going to preach the gospel at all times and, if necessary, use words. You know that one? I realized that was an excuse for me. Preach the gospel at all times and, if necessary, use words. Brothers and sisters, it's always necessary to use words. Otherwise, they'll think you're a philanthropist or a Mormon or some other cult group. We have to use words. More to the point, we have to point to this word. I was thinking also of people that I might not want to use the bridge. This is a sinful thought. People that I would like to see pay. You know, there might be people that I am happy are unhappy this weekend because of I trust a God-honoring decision about the sanctity of life. And I look at that and I'm enjoying their frustration, you know. But how much more would I enjoy it if the lost would actually repent and come to not my side but Christ's side? How much greater would that joy be than seeing them languish and hate it, but actually change and love Christ for the bridge builder that he is, and he can save them. And for you and I, it means knowing the door is open, and our call is here, and it begins with prayer. Let's finish with prayer. And... uh, We'll finish with a benediction in a moment. Father, we've been exhorted here to be proclaimers of the gospel of Christ, which you have made so abundantly clear in your word and elsewhere. And I don't want to see words on a page, Father. I want to see the perfections of an infinite God in motion through the redemptive work of Christ Jesus, which this passage celebrates and asks us to celebrate openly before a lost world. I thank you for a time that we can come together as I trust believers here, Father. And we can do that as a church that is uh, made holy by the blood of Christ. Of course, if there is anyone here who does not know you as the bridge builder, who has not... uh, sought regeneration, experienced conversion, and known the forgiveness of sins that comes through repentance because of the blood of Christ. I pray that they would cling to you and know you, call out to you, and that your spirit would move. I thank you that the gospel is also good for our sanctification in our day-to-day, trusting of you more. And that means trusting you to do the work of the gospel, in those that we encounter on a day-to-day basis, Father. Thank you that the youth are learning of these things right now. Thank you that your word stands forever. And the bridge that is Christ, the way, the truth, and the life will forever be a wonder to behold. May we point to him wisely and in a way that honors you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.